Um, Please stand as I read from Romans chapter 9, verse 8 through 13. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who are calls, she has told the older will, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Thank you, Garrett. You may be seated. Before we dive into this challenging passage of Scripture, let's pray. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise that it will not go out without accomplishing its purposes. Uh, Thank you for the Holy Spirit, what you've promised, that he will guide us to all truth. May those promises hold true this morning. Lord, please help me to serve your people well, to open your scripture plainly and clearly. And mainly, I pray that your word itself would speak loudly and clearly into our ears. Help us to understand. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you would think having basically had a week-long extension since I was sick last Sunday that I would have mastered this passage uh, by this morning, but that is not the case. I told you two weeks ago when we first really got into chapter 9 of the book of Romans that I've never felt less like a scholar and more like an idiot than than now studying this chapter, and that still remains true. Um, This is difficult theological work. Um, During Sunday school, I opened this passage up to our teenagers in Sunday school to just kind of let them loose on it and see how they would do. And um, I just want to report to you, I was really impressed with how clearly our young people can think theologically through these issues that we're faced with in this chapter. So they did a great job on it. So I think we're in good shape. We can do this, right? You're sticking with me through this, right? Good. Because it's glorious and it's wonderful, but it's like with every verse... New doors are opened up to huge ideas and huge questions, huge theology about God. And I feel like you have to think about it all at the same time to be able to understand what God is saying in this passage of Scripture. And um, so trying to do that, trying to think about all these huge ideas all at the same time, preparing this sermon, uh, I've rewritten it at least a dozen times trying to get it ready here to think plainly about this passage this morning, including the last rewrite this morning, uh, frantically with my cup of coffee. I woke up thinking, wait a minute. And that, that's always tough on Sunday mornings when you wake up thinking, wait a minute. But here we are, and what I've decided to do is just restrain myself to just this passage. And there will be plenty of questions left And we'll answer a lot of those questions as we work through chapter 9. A lot of your questions Paul does address. So I'm not going to try to answer them all this this morning, uh, partly because I don't know the answers to all of them. But um, we will look at these verses, though, and we'll stick in here. It's enough. Uh, 
But first we need to do a little work to catch up because I know uh, Ron wouldn't preach Romans 9 last week. I tried to get him to do it, and he wouldn't. So two weeks ago, if you'll remember where we're at, we looked at verses, basically verses 1 through 9 of Romans chapter 9. And we're just coming off of Romans chapter 8. Do you remember Romans chapter 8? It's one of the best passages of Scripture. It's probably on a coffee mug in your house about God's unstoppable love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. You remember how chapter 8 ends? Uh, For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's love is unstoppable. We cannot be separated from it. But then Paul screeches to a halt and says, but wait a minute, what about the Jews? Did they not have God's love and yet now many, many, many of them reject Jesus? So does that mean that God's word has failed? His love is not so sure and unstoppable after all? since so many of Israel rejected Jesus. So that's what we looked at two weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 9, and and especially verse 6 and on, where Paul says, No, God's word has not failed. It has held true for true Israel, the children of promise. There was always an Israel within Israel. And it's the children of promise that God's love is unfailing for. But there are many who will not receive it. Does that, anybody remember this? We did this? Okay, no? (laughs) Good enough, we'll keep moving. The recap's online. So today he continues that argument, okay? God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. It's the children of promise, not the children of flesh. And he continues his thought with another Old Testament couple of people, Jacob and Esau. Um, You guys may be somewhat familiar with them. So the way I've broken it down, the way we'll look at it is he basically presents three possible determining factors for who becomes a child of God, for who becomes a Christian, for who becomes a child of promise. He throws out the first two and he embraces the third. So the three possible determining factors of why some people become Christians and some people don't are parents, personal record, Or the purpose of God. So he dismisses parents and personal record. And he embraces that it's the purpose of God that determines who becomes a Christian and who doesn't. So let's look at his argument, how he proceeds. We'll start at verse 10. Because we covered through verse 9 two weeks ago. Parents. Parentage. Paul writes, And not only so, like we talked about with Isaac and Ishmael, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. She's referring back to in he's referring back to in Genesis when Jacob and Esau were born. Okay, I, I feel like we have to walk through the history a little bit. So God promises Abraham, I'm gonna give you a miracle child, and through this child I'm gonna bless the whole world. Abraham and Sarah are old, they're barren, they're past child rearing age. So they go their own way. Abraham has a child with Sarah's concubine, with with Sarah's servant girl. They name him Ishmael. God says, no, I'm not blessing Ishmael's line. I'm blessing 
a promised child that I'm going to bring about, Isaac. So they have Isaac. He's a miracle child, and God blesses through his lineage. Isaac receives a similar promise back in Genesis chapter 25. I'll read it to you real quick. In Genesis chapter 25, starting verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. She was pregnant with twins. And she said, if it is truly thus, why is this happening to me? If this is God's promised way, why is all this struggle going on inside me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So then they, she has these children, Esau and Jacob. It says, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Can you women imagine giving birth to a little wolverine? So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, or uh, he who takes by the heel. It's the idea of a cheater. He cheats. He was trying to, like, pull Esau back in and be born first. Isaac was 60 years old when these kids were born. So here's the big idea. He talked about Isaac and Ishmael trying to prove that God has... A certain thing that he's doing through children of promise. And he did it through Isaac, not Ishmael. And now he's saying he's, this certain thing that God is doing through children of promise was through Jacob, not Esau. Even though they shared the same father, they shared the same mother, they shared the same womb. They were twins. None of that was the determining factor in which one God chose. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us because we don't think so much in terms of our parents. I don't think anybody in here really thinks that they're in with God because their parents are Christians. Maybe you do. Um, I think a closer parallel for our day would just be Christian culture that we're in. So let me ask you. I'm assuming most of us in here walked in assuming that we're all Christians. We are all newly born new creatures, new creations, believers in Jesus, men and women who trust Jesus Christ. Usually in our culture, if you walk into church, you're assuming that you are a Christian. So I'm asking you, what do you base that assumption on? Is it based on the fact that you have lived in and grown up in a Christian culture? Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe your parents were and are Christians. Maybe your friends are churchy people, Christians. And so by association, by environment, it's just an assumption that you've always had. Yeah, I'm a Christian too. I'm a a conservative American, therefore I'm a Christian maybe. This challenges that assumption. Paul is going out of his way to say... No environmental factors make you a child of promise. It is purely of God. So it's good for us to examine ourselves here. What makes us think that we're children of God? Because you can share a pew. Two people can share a pew for decades. 
and one of them be a Christian, a child of God, and one of them not. Take, for example, my youth group. I grew up like a lot of you people did. I came through youth group. I had a youth group at Trinity Baptist Church. Um, it's in Monroe. It's a great group. There's about half a dozen of us, give or take. You know, there's always some that cycle in and out. But there was about six of us that were the core group. And I came in from the outside in the eighth grade. And they had all grown up as children in the church. And I came in in the eighth grade. And they embraced me into the group because I was so cool. No, they were a great group. They did embrace me. Um, so we all had very similar situations. Uh, our, at least one of our parents was in church. Um, we were all taught the basic Christian you know, morality. Um, we were all brought to church on Sundays and Sunday nights at that church and Wednesday nights. We all were taught the same lessons by the same youth pastors on Sundays and Wednesdays. And yet, I look at the paths that we all took, and we didn't all take the same path. Some are still clinging to Christ, devoted to Jesus, and some are not. And I can't look at any of the environmental factors and figure out a causal relationship there. Some of the ones who are most dedicated to Jesus now would not be the ones I would have guessed. Um, We ran into one of these guys at a youth beach trip. He just happened to be at Broadway at the beach. Will must remember because he's shaking his head. Or he's thinking about something else, lunch. (laughs) Lunch is going to be good. And we ran into one of these guys at Broadway at the beach. And, you know, honestly, and I told him this too, so I don't think he'd mind me telling all you people this. Y'all don't know him anyway. He's not one of the ones I would have predicted would be really serious about Jesus right now. And yet... He was about to leave his really good career to go be an IT guy for uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators because he was passionate about getting the Bible to to people groups who didn't have it in their language. Now, I wouldn't have guessed that just based on who he was back then. It's hard for us to see any rhyme or reason for who God chooses. And Paul points back to Esau and Jacob to show that they had everything identically the same And one was chosen, one was not. So it's not about our parentage. It's not about our environment. He also says it's not about our personal record. Let's keep reading. I'll start back at 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the other will serve the younger. The, the other. The older will serve the younger. So they're little babies in the womb, and God tells their mom, the younger is going to be more powerful, stronger than the older. The older is going to serve the younger. So the question is, well, we'll get to the question. This gets into really tricky territory, but in just a minute. There's a misunderstanding that a lot of us have, and it's that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. We're the good people because we're clean cut and we're in church on Sunday morning. Someone who may right now have a beer in his hand is the bad people, so he's not going to go to heaven. 
And that's kind of how we grow up thinking. Um, so you take person A and person B. Uh, if person A does this much good stuff and this much bad stuff, they're probably in. If person B does this much good stuff but this much bad stuff, he's probably not in. But what Paul is teaching here is that the good stuff we do and the bad stuff we do really has no determination on if we're going to become a child of promise, a Christian. These were two babies in the womb. They hadn't done anything good or bad yet. So if you're sitting here thinking, when I ask that question, why are you assuming that you are indeed a Christian? If you weren't thinking about, well, because I grew up in a Christian home, if instead you thought, because I mainly do good stuff and I don't do too much bad stuff, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't determine it. Again, thinking back to my, my youth group. It's easy to think that it was those who did a lot of good that worked their way into Christianity. But I look back and it's just not the way it panned out. And I remember I went back to my youth pastor, Jimmy Dale, uh, when I knew I was going to go into the ministry or I was going to go to Bible college. And uh, it worked out that I got to go see him. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And I thought he would be so proud. But it was really interesting, his response, when I told him that I was going into Bible college. I thought he would be like, yes, I did my job well. But he, you know, he rejoiced in it and he was happy, but he took no ownership in it at all. And I think that's because he'd been in youth ministry long enough to realize it was out of his hands what was going to happen to these youths that came through. There's some determining factor beyond our environmental influences and beyond our own morality that determines who will be a Christian and who will not. So what is it? And you might be thinking, maybe this isn't normative. Maybe this is just about Esau and Jacob. Maybe they're a special case. But Paul's whole point here is that this is how God operates. And I have a whole bunch of scriptures of other people that God talked about his ministry to them in the womb. That basically he saved them in the womb. He called them to be prophets in the womb. He filled them with the Holy Spirit in the womb. But I'm going I'm to skip all that. Because I don't feel, I feel like that would sidetrack. The bottom line, the big idea, God's work in determining who will become a Christian and who will not is independent of our environment and independent of our good or bad deeds. It's dependent on the purpose of God. The whole key to this whole thing, I believe, is in verse 11. At the end of verse 11. Does yours have it in dash like separated by dashes. At the middle of verse 11, there's a dash, and it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. The whole time I've prepared this sermon, I have felt in my back of my mind that I'm missing a link in my line of thinking that would make this make sense. And this is where the link is missing. And now I'm trying to, on the fly... Correct that problem. You see, this whole idea of God choosing some people and not others is really problematic. It's really troubling. This idea of election has caused huge debate for years and years and years and centuries and centuries and centuries. 
think about it as the Calvinists and the Arminians, if you know the theological teams. And I don't know where any of you land on this. But what this passage is teaching is that it's God's purpose that decides. Not our environment, not if we do good or if we do bad. You may, on a gut level, want to reject the idea that God chooses some to be Christians and rejects others based on his own will and not based on what people do. But if we can grapple with this and understand how that it's actually good that God operates that way, I think that it will result in a seismic shift in your whole way of thinking about life. See, in the modern age, we... Think about life from us upward. We start with ourselves and then we try to figure out God in light of us. Whereas that's backwards. We really need to think about God and then figure out our lives in light of him. See, it used to be ancient people. I've recently read a really interesting book about this by Tim Keller. Ancient people realized that there was an unmovable reality and that they had to orchestrate their lives around that. Modern people feel as though we are the immovable reality. And we can orchestrate reality around our desires. And our theology falls into that same trap. So we come to a passage like this or an idea like who becomes a Christian. And we really want it to be about us and the way we think it should be. And God should orchestrate things how we feel it should go. But what the Bible teaches is that it's mainly God's purpose, not our purpose, that prevails. God is up to something very specific. Now, if we could understand that, if we could embrace his purpose, it would make all of our life make sense. It's like going shopping with children. If any of you have gone shopping with children, you're in Walmart, you've got stuff on your list, things you need to do, you need to get your stuff and get out. Has anybody been in this scenario before? The kids don't know what your purpose is in there, especially if they're very young, and they don't care. Their purpose is to grab what they can reach. Their purpose is to get out of the buggy and run into the arms of strangers. Their purpose is to find the candy and the toys. They are not even aware that you have a purpose bigger and greater beyond what they understand. And I would argue that a mark of maturity as a person is Understanding that there are purposes bigger than ours. Just like a child grows to understand, my parents have a purpose bigger than what I want. They have some purpose that they're after beyond me getting my candy. And it's the same as a Christian, as a, as a human. As we can grow to understand that God has a purpose that's bigger, that's greater, that's beyond what we understand, that our purposes. That's a huge leap forward in maturity. And I don't know where any of you are at in that. I wrestle with this every week, every day. I have my purposes, and I want to grab God and shove him, the God of the universe, into my purposes. And it will never work that way. God will sweep us up into his grand epic purpose, but he will not fit into our little tiny purpose, usually misguided purpose. And I'll bet the majority of your frustration even just in this last week, has probably been because you're trying to accomplish your purpose and God will not get in line with it. Like a kid in the buggy 
who you know how they can just shake the whole buggy with their body weight to try to get you to go toward their purpose. Now all this, this whole uh, tangent about purpose is important on this subject of election and salvation. Paul uses that terminology, election. I'm surprised as I studied for this sermon how hard people, commentators, other preachers, and myself try to make it say something that it doesn't because it just, it's hard. We're so entrenched in thinking about ourselves, we can't even get out of that and accept the fact that God might have a purpose bigger than us, even when it comes to salvation. So I know Tim gets angry at me as I mention this. I'm losing track of time. So I'm just going to tell you the big idea here. And I'm going to try. I, got, I have three reasons why it's really actually very good. Look at this phrase in verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. If you look at the original construction of that phrase, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, you might be surprised at what you'll find. We tend to want to think of God's, you know, sovereign elective will and making Christians as sort of a secondary issue. But the way that phrase is constructed, it proves that election is central to his purpose. His being free and sovereign to declare who is a Christian and who is not is central to the purpose of God. I'm going to have to preach another sermon on this. I do not have time to unpack all that. That is a massive anvil to drop onto your head like in a cartoon and then to just walk away. What does it mean? Yes, I'm rounding out to a close. I know it sounds like I'm starting a whole other point. What does it mean for God's love to be unconditional? Do we want God to be unconditionally loving? It is required that God be sovereign in electing Christians, if his love is going to be unconditional. His choices here are totally based in of himself, and that's good because that enables his love to be unconditional. If you women ask your husbands, why do you love me? First off, that's a trap. (laughs) But if you were to ask your husband, why do you love me? And let's say your husband says, because you're so beautiful. Well, what if something happens and you lose your physical beauty? What if you get in an accident or something happens and you lose your physical beauty? Does that mean his love isn't going to be there anymore? You only love me because I'm pretty looking? He's pretty shallow. Or if he says, because you're so funny. Well, what if something happens and you're not so funny anymore? The jokes grow old. Does that mean his love for you is going to fade? And he says, because you're so smart. What's going to happen? You know, you lose your intelligence as we're, we're all going to deteriorate one day. No, the answer you want is, I just love you. I just do. I just love you and I always will. For my whole life, no matter what changes you go through, no matter what happens, I will always love you. So that's the kind of love we have from God. Because his choice in loving us is completely in of himself, not based on us. God is love. He just loves. He just loves you. This is why it's so secure. That verse I read in chapter 8, 
If it had to do with our being good or bad, we couldn't rely on it being secure. We'd lose it all the time. The reason God's love is unstoppable and we can't be separated from it is because it's totally initiated from himself, not based on us at all. So election is good. And then I'll close with this. His sovereign choice of one, not the other, his sovereign choice of who will become Christians, who will not, is not made by some cold God in a lab coat somewhere off in the distance. That choice comes to us with the radical, self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Jesus, on the cross, some of his last words, in agony, dying, he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And I'm not even, I don't have time even to get to verse 13, which is what you're all wondering about, how God could get away with hating Esau. Basically, in that moment, Jesus was taking the hatred so that we could have the love. Jesus took Esau's position so we could have Jacob's position. Jesus was rejected so we could be embraced. So yes, God is sovereign. God is God. He makes choices. But they are extremely loving, and he is extremely loving. He is extremely good. I may have to preach this passage again next week. (laughs) Do me a favor. I've asked you to do this before. Do it again. Reread Romans 9 this week. Especially these verses. Ask, write down your questions. Try to figure this thing out. And we'll revisit it next week because I did not do it justice this morning. God is more sovereign than you have ever dared to imagine. And that is a better truth than you can fathom right now. Let's pray. God, thank you for being God. Thank you for loving us. Lord, please, please help us to make sense of all this this morning. Um, I pray that we would all have time this week to open your word and struggle with this and wrestle with who are you? What are you up to? What is your purpose in the world? What does it mean for us? Lord, please help us to sort these things out. God, I know that you are good. Now, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.